America was founded on the notion that a person should be free to follow his or her destiny. But we can't do that if we're living in fear of our own government. We need to reclaim this country for free men and women everywhere. Banded together from remote galaxies are the most sinister villains of all time. The Legion of Dudes! Dude! His dudeness, duder, el duderino. Dude! Dude! Dedicated to a single objective, the conquest of the universe. It's the Legion of Dudes podcast. And now, here's the dudes. You are listening to the Legion of Dudes podcast. What's up, everybody? This is Adam Umack. I am here tonight with um, my buddies uh, Jim Dietz, Russell Latham, and Ken Morgan. And we're going to be covering uh, New Frontier Part 3. So this is the third Maxi series we've finished up. Be sure to check our backlog at legionofdudes.com where you can hear us go over Watchmen, Kingdom Come, and a bunch of awesome one-shot episodes. Also, please be sure to check out Brad and Frank and Bill's podcast, Half Hour Wasted, which is also available at halfhourwasted.com, our same site that we share with our awesome co-op podcast. So um, we have to take on the awesome undertaking of wrapping up Darwin Cook and uh, Jay Bones' epic, I mean, 400-plus page saga of uh, The New Frontier. We're going to start right now with Chapter 10, which is called SOS, Green Lantern. Yeah, so, Ken, let's get uh, your opening thoughts about, um, you know, The New Frontier since you haven't been on an episode. I mean, I know you love the animated feature, and uh, I guess where did you start? Did you start with the movie, or did you start with the book first? Um, I started with the with the movie. I, I had never read or really heard of uh, New Frontier. Again, as everyone knows, I'm, I'm relatively new to comics, so I, I didn't read New Frontier when it came out. So my first exposure was was the movie. And from reading the book now, it, what they put in the movie is pretty much right on with what's what's in the book. Of course, there's a lot that's not in the movie, uh, but these next few pages are pretty much pretty much what's in the. Uh, the book, except uh, he gets the Green Lantern suit a little bit early uh, in in the book, as whereas he doesn't really get it right away in the in the movie. Um, J- uh, Jim, you mentioned asked me about uh, how it jives with with uh, Hal's history in the comics because I'm, I'm reading Green Lantern Chronicles again, and um, you know the high points are there. Abin Sur crashes on Earth. Uh, the Ring finds someone worthy. Finds Hal. That that's all there. Um, it's the specifics surrounding it. Like in this case, Open Source coming to meet the uh, the menace of the center, where it was uh, much more vague in the original uh, the original origin, and they've since dressed it up in uh, in the current Green Lantern series. Did Hal have a lot of the self doubt and kind of the uh, disbelief that he has? In no, the actually, in that ideas? it seems to be a re- ongoing thing. You know, like suffering Susie and just like oh, this great power has been given to him, he can hardly get his head around it. I'd imagine in the original comics, he's a little more confident. He's very much more confident, the co- confident, almost cocky Hal Jordan that uh, I've always, I've always known. No, in 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 this book, in New Frontier, you're right. There's a lot of that self doubt, and it's um, it's really. The big theme with him has been to me is how do you define courage? You know, he's always been called a coward because he never really took a life or never fired on an aircraft. And it wasn't until he was faced with his own survival that he actually shot and killed someone. 
um, but he was branded a coward and he was doubting, like, is, is that really what I am? And it isn't until he meets Avin Sur, who pretty much lays it out for him, no, courage is other things, and you truly are a man without fear. And, and through through his tests uh, with uh, with the center, he, he comes to realize that. But he definitely is, I think, buying what everyone around him is, is trying to sell him. You still see a hint of that edge. It wants to come out, but he's not too sure of himself uh, uh, initially. It's definitely a, a difference between the the how that I've known and what I'm reading in Chronicles and the, the current series. Our first, uh, you know, uh, t- uh, chapter ten here really just goes over how getting the ring from a dying Abensor. And I mean, there's a lot of like differences. You know, Abensor is not in uh, his uh, spaceship that we're that we're familiar with. Um, you know, with all the you know subsequent uh, Green Lantern volumes, uh, he's just kind of flying solo, and it's the blast um, from uh, Ferris's aircraft slash rocket that kind of sends him hurtling toward Earth because of the yellow light. Now, I guess some thoughts on how getting the ring here. I mean, obviously, we've been building up since you know the first couple of chapters to how getting the ring. I mean, we all knew it, and he didn't, right? What I like about this particular section is that. Heroes' origins, like Barry Allen or, or Wally West, or in this case, Hal, they aren't really explored as much as, you know, the rockets of Earth from Krypton or, you know, uh, Bruce Wayne's parents getting murdered outside of the theater. There's definitely a context to this, but it's the context of the New Frontier story, not just becoming a hero out of nowhere. I mean, you know, Hal's connected to, you know, uh, Pappy, and he's connected to, you know, everybody else in the story, too, but, like... And what they didn't do with Bruce or Clark is they they had this origin be a part of the story, whereas even though this is like a really, really strict Green Lantern story, I think, there's definitely room for like interpretation as far as this goes because like Hal's in the um, the test aircraft, you know, like there have been other origins where he gets the ring when he's, um, you know, flying in air and, and, the stu- and stuff like that. But I mean, like... This is really, really New Frontier specific, and I think it's really cool because while he flies around, you know, the ultimate dream of, of, of this pilot here, you know, he also, you know, deals with the yellow impurity, and he also deals with immediate failure with, you know, these giant, like, rocks and boulders and stuff that, you know, he's, he's moving around to. So I think it's pretty cool, and I think that this is something that you can't really do with Batman or Superman's origin because... I just don't think it, you know, necessarily works. I mean, it's pretty straightforward. His parents get murdered, you know, and Hal's got a little more room to grow because he doesn't have the trappings of supporting characters. Eben Sur comes in and he goes out, and then Hal's on his own. You know, it right. takes Bruce and it takes Clark years to become who they are, even though they, that's the quote-unquote trigger moment, you know? Yeah, I like how they did in this, uh, I mean, Superman, Batman, even Wonder Woman, they're established in this world. You know, we kind of find them in the middle of their careers or, like, well into their careers as, as these heroes. And you're right, this is how story. In fact, when I watched that movie the first time and you see the cover and you've got Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman up on the top and all the other heroes in b- below with Green Lantern front and center, and then you watch it, I came away that this this wasn't the the big threes movie. This this was Hal's movie. This this was my Green Lantern movie. Of course, in a week or two, I'm going to have my Green Lantern movie. But but it really was more about him. I mean, he really does. Everybody contributes, but he really does save the day in the in the end. I th- I thought. And he yeah. said this is unique. The specifics of the origin are 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 unique to the story. But as I said, and this is how my I feel with any origin telling. As long as they hit the high points. It doesn't matter if it's this or the Spider-Man movie or Fantastic Four movie. As long as they hit the the key, you know, those key touch points, 
you know, Avin Sur crashes, finds someone worthy, finds Hal. You know, as long as I get those four things, the, the, the dressing can be different. Um, but we got what we need, and it's to me it rings true to the uh, to the to the Green Lantern origin. Looking at the first few pages of this chapter, one of the things I noticed it's very reminiscent of Kirby. And looking at the art, um, yeah, yeah, even even down to the ring, it's like the ring is almost designed as like the Kirby crackle um, on the design of the ring. It's not the very pristine, um, well shaped um, ring that we're used to seeing on Hal. Um, it almost looks like this ring is weathered and worn and, and kind of seen it all, um, especially even on, I guess, the, the third page of this chapter, which is you know 285 in the absolute, where he's putting the ring on his actual mm-hmm. finger. You can see that crackle even around the band of it, um, as well as on the top. And that, that page before, on 284, where I guess it's uh, Abensor's hand in front of his face like that, just that, that background and the way his, his eyes look and, and everything else. Just very reminiscent of Kirby on these, on these yeah. two pages here. Yeah, it almost looks like the ring. It's, it's radiating so much energy, almost as if it's made of energy itself. It's not like a physical thing. I mean, it is, and I, I can see the weathering you're talking about. But the ring itself almost looks like a construct. Yeah, yeah. Well, part of the point that you were uh, making before about um, like something that se- separates uh, Green Lantern from, say, Superman or Batman. Superman went out and became Superman, you know, because he wanted to. Um, Batman went out and became Batman because he wanted to. Hal Jordan has been, you know, basically told, "Look, here is this, you know, weapon of ultimate power. You know, here is this responsibility. We're putting it on you." And I think, as opposed to the original Silver Age origin, we really see the weight of that. You know, sit on Hal, and he's like trying to deal with all this. You know, uh, uh, all at once. I mean, Superman grew up being as powerful as he was. You know, Batman made himself as powerful as he was. Here is a guy who has, you know, regular. He's self doubts. Um, you know, he's a test pilot. He likes to, you know, flirt with danger, and yet he's been given this huge responsibility. And I mean, through this whole monologue in the sequence, we see him, you know, coming to grips with that really and trying to deal with it. And it's it's a, an origin story of Green Lantern, like you were saying before, Ken, that I've never really mm-hmm. seen before. It's very New Frontier specific. Yep. The one thing that is consistent with the uh, the Chronicles, uh, the, the the early stories, is that in every single issue of Green Lantern of the early days, it ends with him trying to get with Carol Ferris. He's like, oh, if I, if I could only get that date with Carol. And uh, you can still see here he's trying to get with Carol too. So, uh uh, they they definitely kept that in there as well the uh, the love hate flirtation between the two and you know you also see like variations like you were saying on the same theme like there are some um, Hal Jordan origins where he doesn't get the ring he gets the lantern first which is kind of an important distinction too because I, I just think you know depending on the artist and you know who's telling the story mm-hmm. like I, I I do think that's kind of relevant too because I, I'm not really one that you know subscribes to the whole. The, the lantern is more important than the ring. I mean, I know that's the name, you know what I mean? But right. I mean, that's, just, that's just splitting hairs. But, the, those early you know. issues, those first issues, that exactly was the case. The, the, the lantern was the focus point. The, the ring was just the conduit. It's definitely been reversed over the years, and certainly today the ring is the, is the weapon. The, the, the lantern's just the battery. But in those early stories that I'm, that I'm reading now, uh, that's very much the case. You're absolutely right on that. It, it, it's just you know a minor distinction, but I think it's an important one too, especially... If you look at Bronze Age upward, after like the quote unquote Green Lantern universe and Kilowog and everybody came into play, you know. So um, from there, I guess, guys, we're gonna hit the uh, Challenger Mountain, where um, Lois Lane's kind of observing, uh, you know, all the guys uh, with, with Jimmy, uh, Rocky, and everybody, and they get a national emergency, 
alert, and they're off. And, of course, this is, which we'll see in a couple pages, the center. And um, not much really to report on those couple pages, only that there's a quick uh, Ray Palmer on the cover of a magazine my grandfather used to subscribe to, uh, Scientific American, which is pretty cool. I really love the lab stuff here, like the real crazy uh, stuff on the screen and the very Kirby, like uh, Russ was saying, the very Kirby-esque you know, machinery and everything like that. And just in the sequence, especially in the use of color and everything, is really cool. Those kind of like crazy color tones is something that we'll see when the heroes kind of dive into the center. I mean, that was a pretty trippy sequence in the movie, you know? It's pretty, but, like, pretty true sequence in the pages, too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those are really hard to, um, to, to make out, actually. You know, in, in a lot of ways, it's, it's almost like the, the challengers kind of know or, like, have, like, data on the center at this point. But, I mean, 11 picks up toward the center. You know, that's exactly where they're headed. When I'm going to guess that the J is for uh, John Jones kind of um, sends... Uh, Clark Kent of uh, this newsreel of Theodore Smeisel's the Dr. Seuss analog um, supporting storyline character guy. Uh, this film reel that has uh, his well, the film oh reel. God, the film reel was sorry. sent was sent by was sent by by Bruce to to Clark, wasn't it? Oh, but it's got because it's got the Wayne Foundation logo on the envelope. That's right. But then it's got it's got J, so it's looks like it's John's notes in Bruce's envelope. It looks like it's probably when, when well. When John it's, was captured, maybe uh, Bruce picked up all of his stuff that he had gathered from his investigations. Right, and somehow it got photographed, and you know Clark's looking at it with his vision on this on this uh, negative or microfiche, whatever he's looking at. So it's probably just a straight photograph or film strip of the no, of the physical hard copy, which has John's note attached to it. Yeah, because they they made it pretty clear earlier on that while maybe not directly working together, that John and Bruce were sharing information and and one was kind of leaning on the other mm-hmm. to help out so yeah i think i think jim's right i think this is john's work that bruce recovered after his his disappearance slash capture and sent it on to clark to try and see what he can make of it it's kind of deceptive because it's got a paper clip to the actual newsreel i mean do you know how like small that paper clip and note have well no no no, no the paper clip is in the image and the whole thing was photographed the paperclip is on the actual page, and then that whole thing was photographed, and you're looking at what's on the negative um, that Clark's looking at. So the, that's all part of the image. It's not clipped to the newsreel. It's not clipped to the to the negative. Oh, okay. I got you on that. Yeah, like okay, Bruce so was like a, whipped out his little super spy camera and took, took pictures of the notes. Because it's got exposure number one on it. Okay. Um, so, like, I guess more or less, like, it's the whole dawn of civilization, rise of the dinosaurs, circle of life. Lion King routine, where the, the, the gist of everything that Clark's looking at has uh, Theodore Smeisel's, like, last words, which are, I have grown restless in my youth and yearn to explore the other spheres that cycle endlessly round the glowing center of my world. Mm-hmm. I shall feed and I shall grow as always from the center. So you have this kind of, like, um, omnipresent of third-person voice talking, or excuse me, first-person voice talking, in this kind of like omniscient over uh, bearing tones that it's it's basically like I would say like universal domination and this uh, alien from space the center this 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 being it more or less I mean calls out that it set its sights on you know this ugly mud ball you know called Earth right and in true Silver Age form you know the threat is extraterrestrial. Interestingly, though, uh, Bruce gives it to Clark, who's an alien himself, right? Yep. 
Who, who better to fight an alien than another one? Now, this whole sequence, this whole monologue, this is, this is basically the opening sequence of the animated movie. You know, this is, this, this is yeah, our, yeah. our whole opening, get us the whole, basically laying out the story for us. But at the moment, at that time when I first saw it, I'm like, well, all right, well, I don't get this. What is this? You know, I hadn't, hadn't really, I hadn't read it, of course, so I didn't really know what I was, I was watching at that point. And as, as the story unfolded, it was pretty cool. So when I read this in the yeah, book, and I'm like, is- oh, this is here, okay. Yeah, and this combined with the thing that we talked about in last episode where Theodore Schmeissel actually, you know, goes for the gun and puts it up to his head, and that's how it, you know, that's how it starts. So yeah, this combined with what we saw a couple chapters ago exactly is the, is the opening sequence of the animated. So it appears to me that Batman and Superman kind of know each other's identities because when um, Superman lands in Gotham, um, with a very, very expectant young Dick Grayson, a.k.a. Robin, Bruce directly asked him, did you get the microfilm, microfilm I sent you? And he says, I did. So if it's got the Wing um, Enterprises tag on it and it's sent to Clark Kent, my guess is that these two are, you know, uh, although rivals, as Batman would probably uh, phrase it, uh, they are um, at this point allies, at least on a more personal level, they're... They they totally buy into the whole secret identity routine, you know. And, yeah, and they, well, they refer to them to each other as Bruce and Clark as they speak too. In fact, at mm-hmm. the end, it's like yeah. take care, of Bruce. You know, yeah, they, Clark. they do, and even Diane I think does as well uh, at one point. But as they go on and have their discussions, I mean, they're talking about the um, you know the arrangements they made with the government, and it's basically like before Superman made his his little deal with the public or whatever it was, he. Uh, he knew Bruce was going to stay in hiding to, to work in 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 the background and. Uh, even when you say when he when it was arranged that he he lost or something like that. Here's I know Clark. That's why we staged your defeat all those years ago. Um, the one will stay legitimate. The one will stay uh, in the shadows, but so, so that each can work the the system in their own way until such a time that they can be re, re, re uh, reunited. So uh, they're playing the system the whole time. And this is this is an awesome turning point for the Batman character. I mean, much like in the actual comics, but we see here that the Bruce, you know, Batman character has softened his look even and, and changed his look. And then, you know, of course adopted the, you know, Robin as a sidekick. And I love the way that, that Darwin Cook has portrayed him where he's, he's a kid, you know, he's bouncing around, he's doing, you know, cartwheels and he's, I take it as he's kind of sort of show, trying to show off and get Superman's attention because he, you know, somewhat idolizes Superman based on his comments at the beginning as they're talking. And one of the things in the New Frontier special that came out, uh, I guess a year or so ago now, that one of the, the most relevant chapters that was added was where Superman comes to the Batcave and there's a whole exchange in there that really fits in well with, with this story. So, so I, just, I just thought this was cool how we see the characters evolving over, mm-hmm. over time and as time is passing. Yeah, not to bring keep bringing the movie up, but I think this whole sequence takes place in the Batcave in the movie, not not outside like this is. And it's symbolic of what yeah, Batman uh, became in the Silver Age. He became a lot more of a kids' comic, a lot more friendly uh, from the you know, more darker uh, pulp origins uh, that he originally you know came from. And that original Bob Kane design too. I mean, that that I, I really think that that's a, a really fierce design. You know, going back to Detective Twenty Seven and, and the subs and the subsequent um, Detective issues too, like. It, it definitely is a little more, you know, devilish, and you know he's got the gun and stuff back then too, you know. But um, it's 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 a softened blow, and as much as I acknowledge, but not really wholly accept the Adam West stuff, like 
the the cape and cowl and in the eyebrows I think are, are really cool here, especially the nose, as far as how it's drawn and, and colored. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We jump then to uh, Paradise Island, aka Themyscira, which, of course, like Gotham or Metropolis, is just important uh, uh, to the to the DC uh, universe. And while besting one of her uh, kinsmen, Diana sees like a great shadow cast over. Uh, Paradise Island, which we will know in a few pages to be the center's opening attack. I mean, who else to take out than, I guess, in current DC terms, like uh, Planet Krypton, right? You take out the 100,000 Kryptonians first, or in this case, the Amazons, you know? Absolutely. One page real quick, and you get the point, like, oh, crap, something's happening. And we then jump to um, the Nellis Air Force Base, where King Faraday and John Jones are locked up together, of course, uh, Faraday's uh, visiting him. And, you know, Faraday talks about, you know, why he's named King, and he, he refers to um, himself like uh, his dad called him King, like uh, King for a day, you know, which, which is appropriate, you know, because of the chess game they're playing. And, well, I mean, Faraday's pretty much been making his own rules with trying to capture yep. the Flash and with, with um, you know, I mean, he's, he's a spook, you know what I mean? He, he's, he's a government operative. This kind of like battle of wits that he's playing with John as far as chess goes, you know, John's doing it straight. He wants to, quote unquote, beat Faraday at his own game without the mental telepathy, which I think is kind of cool. There's that, but this this whole pay, two pages here is one of my favorites because there's really, I mean, there's two two games of chess going on here. I mean, on one hand, they're playing, they're literally playing chess, but just their conversation is in itself a chess game, one they've been playing for some time now, and and it'll play out straight through, straight through to the end when they when they leave and John takes his. Uh, his more traditional Martian Manhunter form that we're used to. Yeah, and I love I love all these exchanges between Faraday and and John. They're just they're really good. Yeah, and it speaks to the inherent honor of uh, John Jones too that he wants to beat him in chess, you know, on his own terms. He could easily you know walk out of the establishment they have him uh, you know locked up in at any time, but instead he wants to try to learn enough about these people to relate to them and and to uh, to understand them rather than to you know inspire fear. And so um. Rocky and all the other guys uh, from the Challengers of the Unknown, we, we pick up with them at, at the end of uh, Chapter 11 right here, in which case they're kind of hurtling towards this uh, giant yellow uh, pterodactyl now. I think the interesting distinction is we saw the T-Rex with the losers at Part 1, and then when we went back to Dinosaur Island, the, t- the T-Rex w- looked a little more weathered. You know what I mean? Well, we saw pterodactyls and stuff there too, but now, I mean, this thing is, you know... <laughs> I mean, it's the size of, you know, a 747. It, it's huge, and I would also say it looks like probably a lot more fierce. Not that dinosaurs aren't, you know, scary, geez. But it's kind of like, I don't know, like evolved and kind of devolved and at, the, at the very same time. And uh, the Challengers uh, can't handle it. I mean, it, it's kind of too big for them. And then uh, Clark comes in for the save, as Lois and Jimmy point out and snap pictures. And the pterodactyl's grounded and um, laid on the beach. Uh, not that that story's over, but that's also part of what invaded Paradise Island and uh, took Diana out. Is is it? Is it? Because I thought, like, right before that sequence, they talked about an invasion or something coming up at Cape Canaveral. That's where the challenge were going. So I think I think they were two separate attacks. I think the Paradise Island is, in fact, the the actual island. This was just a, a scout. I think they're two, two different attacks. Well, that's, that's I what I mean. Right I mean, time. the center... Ken, I meant like the center's attack. Like that's that's oh, where they're both two yeah. two branches, not the the exact same attacker. Okay, I don't think that's yeah, because I don't think a pterodactyl could beat an invisible jet in the race. <laughs> no, that's exactly my point. Okay, 
Is this the first time we've seen Aquaman in this book? Because I don't remember earlier in the book or not. I know we didn't see him in the movie until the very, very end when he shows up at the, shows up with Soups. Yeah, this is Aquaman's yeah. first appearance here. Okay. Man, that's a great page with him and the, his army of fish. It's probably one of the best Aquaman pages I've ever yeah. seen. Yeah, it's pretty cool. And yeah. actually, it's kind of ominous too, guys, because if you look, what's surrounding him are a bunch of black mantas. Yeah. One of the things I, I noticed is that it looks very much like Lloyd Bridges, that that bottom page there. Yeah. At least to me, you know. The old, yeah, a little bit. The old, you know, Sea Hunt or whatever. It, yeah. it looks very much like Lloyd Bridges to me. I just like this feeling because um, he's talking about the center. Of this, you know, they, they tell the story as the boogeyman in you know in Atlantis, and uh, so clearly the influence of the center has has reached him as well. Which, near as we can tell from the children's story, the center is in the bottom of the ocean anyway. And he still calls everybody the surface dwellers, the, the poisoners, the murderers. You know, in true in true Namor and also Arthur Curry form. Absolutely. One of the things that I know we weren't going to do too much on the note taking in the back, but I just found this was really funny, is that um, originally Darwin Cook had planned on drawing Aquaman naked because he figured what you know what does somebody that lives under the sea need you know clothes for? But he said at the end he chickened out and gave him back his pants. <laughs> <laughs> Chapter 12 is uh, The War That Time Forgot. Now, that's definitely a, a, a red flag and a nod to any fan of comics. You know, The War That Time Forgot, The Land That Time Forgot. You know, all, all, that, uh, all, all those series and, and stories that are, that are tied into that. And it's, it's interesting that they kind of tie the center into, into that title, which, you know, really, I think, resonates just as much as um, any of the military titles from, from D.C. back in the day as well. So the challengers have landed. Uh, they've grounded themselves, and then Clark, of course, sees and hears everything. Uh, you know, almost before it happens, and uh, Diana's uh, jet crashes um, down there at Cape Canaveral, and um, Clark calls for uh, a med team t- for evacuation, uh, or excuse me, for for medical aid t- to help her out. And um, you know, uh, he tears open uh, the bloody mess that is the invisible jet. In, in fewer words, you know, uh, Diana lets him know that that's something wicked this way comes in the form of the center. That is an odd, just a, a chilling scene to see the way the blood is pulling in the invisible plane. It's like, you know, as soon as you see it, you know what's going on. It's just, it's just, it's just creepy as all heck just to see, you know, there's nothing, no plane, not even a wireframe like you see in the, in the Super Friends, just, just Diana and blood. It's so freaking awesome. I mean, the whole, how do you make an invisible jet without, like you were saying, seeing it in the Super Friends to where it's, quote, invisible, or even in the old Wonder Woman TV show, but truly having it invisible, but for the blood that's pooling around. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just awesome. And this is this is one of those scenes, I think, translated way better in the animated than even on the, on the page, because it was just so... Um, well, you see this, yeah, this, 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 so visually stunning. this cockpit soaked in blood in motion coming at you, and you're looking at what, what, what's coming at them now, and as it comes in focus, you're like, oh, wow. You know, because you, you had seen the opening scene of the attack, the shadow coming, but you didn't see anything else than that. Now you're seeing the direct aftermath of it. Back right by the center, um, the challengers uh, with, with red flying uh, Gizmo 1 are over, excuse me, they're in the rocket at this point. They're flying over the Pacific, and um, we cut to uh, Lois with them, right, uh, and, and Jimmy filming the real big emergence of the center. And, I, uh, and this really uh, kind of, like, has pangs of, like, Independence Day or any other, like, modern kind of uh, sci-fi UFO uh, depiction, I think, whether it be Close Encounters or whatever. I mean, you know, the center, uh, basically, it's like this huge 
bizarre single-celled organism, you know, that is both real and unreal at the same time. It's like this organic hot mess of giant laser beams and terra firma. And with the, with the Silver Age twist, it's like the Earth, quote-unquote, even though the center is not part of the Earth, has seemingly turned against the heroes. And the challengers are the first ones to meet the call, even though Diana and was preemptively you know, hit herself. And so this newsreel footage over the next uh, couple pages um, rounds out chapter 12. I, th- I still think it's cool. You know, guys, like it has like the kind of like grainy quality to it. And it, it definitely, I mean, even in like the dialogue when Lewis has, it definitely uh, like strikes of, you know, 1950s kind of news reporting with how they present the information to and the, oh, the humanity, oh, dear God, yeah. <laughs> cries while, yeah, while, yeah. while she's doing it. It's pretty cool. The first time we actually get to see like a big double page spread of the center, it's this grainy, you know, newsreel, you know, television footage. You can barely make out what's going on. It just kind of adds to the chaos and the kind of the mystique of it uh, even more, I think. And we just get an awesome scale with it. I mean, you see these aircraft carriers, which are just ungodly huge, getting tossed around and, and turned around. And even, you know, Lois's narration it says, we watched it pull up an aircraft carrier like an ant. And then we get the comment, like you were saying, Adam, where the loss of life is heartbreaking. Um, our planes are ships, missiles, and nothing but food for this horror. So, yeah, very much the, the oh, the humanity type of type of dialogue. Now, the center is, this This is basically Dinosaur Island, right? Which, is, I, I, from what I understand, it has existed in comics before. And it's something that Darwin Cook took and ran with and turned it into this. Is, is that accurate? Is, that, is my understanding correct on that? Yep. Now, was Dinosaur Island ever something like this or was it simply just an island of dinosaurs it was just like the crazy uh i guess to use the contemporary example kind of like land of the lost okay that's where we get the whole the the, the land that time forgot mm-hmm. uh kind of uh saying and, and title that a lot of, of the dc books kind of had and used under that kind of adventure brand mast well, yeah, i don't know that the island actually like ever came alive and, you know, pulled itself out of the water and, you know, attacked people in that manner. Or wrote a children's book, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it was always one of those, you know, kind of like the the island lost, you know, where, you know, if you just happened to come upon it or, you know, like the island on Gilligan's Island, you know, people just kind of showed up there, you know, but it wasn't, uh, you know, out there and prominent or or whatnot. What was the reaction? Does anybody know when, when, when this came out, there was like, Oh, so you're doing that with Dinosaur Island, or was it just like, oh, that's cool, you know, let, let's 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 see where he takes us. You know, what what was it like? Does anybody know? Not offhand, or I, is, you know, I don't yeah. really have a whole lot of exposure to the old, but I thought it was really cool. I thought, you know, here's something that you know, has been a part of you know old DC lore for a long, long time, and they actually make it. You know, there's a reason for it. You know, other mm-hmm. than it's just this crazy island that for some reason all these things were able to survive, but yet not survive anywhere else. Right. Okay. The fact that it's kind of this living, breathing thing, I, I just, personally, for me, I just thought it was really cool. Yeah, I like the way the cook reworks a lot of the Silver Age conventions uh, in this book, and that's definitely one of them. I mean, Silver Age DC, ooh, you know, it's just happened to be, you know, it's an island full of dinosaurs, and now, you know, oh, well, that's why there's, you know, it's full of dinosaurs. It's, it's, it's kind of like a, a repurposing. I don't, I don't, I mean, at the time this was coming out, there wasn't any, like, large up, negative uproar about, you know, the fact that, oh, my God, I can't believe he did this to Dinosaur Island or anything like that. It was, 
you know, the the buzz overall was just very very positive from what I remember. Yeah, I didn't know if Dinosaur Island was even regarded in that way, but I appreciate the interest. How dare you mess with Dinosaur Island? (laughs) (laughs) Well, there there was always. I'm sure there was one guy who did that. Oh, you know it. We know who that was, but (laughs) it always has to be. I'm I'm sure he had some blistering comments. Um, (laughs) On his fists? Yes. Uh, But what I I would tell you is that it's like, I I wonder sometimes, you know, like 50 50 years ago when we're all in the uh, old folks' home and they're crushing up our pills and our applesauce and we're up close to the TV, like, is someone going to come along like Darwin Cook did for the Silver Age and retell, like, our Bronze Age in our modern age stories, like in this manner, I mean, like, not that anybody wants to revisit the '90s in comics. Let's let's be clear about that, right? But like, I'm wondering if like this kind of like classic retelling, retelling, like how James Robinson did the Golden Age and how Darwin Cook did the New Frontier, you know, and how Alex Ross arguably did, you know, Marvels and stuff like that. Like, are it is can, can there someone? Already are, there already are. I mean, uh, if you look at Astro City, uh, right now they're doing this is the Bronze Age. Uh, they're calling it the Dark Age. You know, to reflect the, the darker uh, heroes in comics from the Bronze Age. Uh, if you look at Brian Michael Bendis, you can tell that his favorite characters were the 70s Marvel Bronze Age characters. I mean, he used the Spider-Woman and Luke Cage. And Luke Cage, right. You know, and he's kind of repurposed all those characters. You know, in the 70s, Luke Cage had a had a you know a silver tiara and a yellow, you know, open shirt, for God's sake. You know, and said, Sweet, Sweet Christmas. Christmas. Sweet you know? Christmas. Now he's like one of the coolest <laughs> characters in Marvel. You know, I mean, I think uh, usually, you know, when, uh, when these writers, you know, when they come up and they get their chance to play with the toy box of DC or of Marvel, they're obviously going to go to the, you know, the characters and the, the, the uh, time frame that, you know, was their goal, you know, personal golden age. And it's obvious Darwin Cook's was the Silver Age from I mean, what yeah. he's done in New Frontier. But, I mean, I would argue that, you know, you see comics like Astro City, which is already kind of repurposed and retold that, you know, the Bronze Age thing and, you know, like I said, Bendis. And, you know, to a certain extent, what Jeff Johns is doing, you know, repurposing some of these characters that have been kind of worn and, I was, you know, battle, battle-weary. I was just going to say, and next thing you know, Hal Jordan comes back and Barry Allen's alive. And speaking of Barry Allen, look, I love this uh, page where you find out that uh, Iris knew all along who he was, and he's like, go. You go where you need to be, and hands him his costume. I had this whole, like, you know, woman, where's my super suit? <laughs> <laughs> you go out Very there and shovel, so. baby. You shovel real good. <laughs> Very much so. I like this because I mean, one of the biggest Silver Age conventions, like in uh, Superman's girlfriend, Lois Lane comic, or you know Jimmy Olsen is you know Superman, are, you know protecting a secret identity, or you know you know so Kathy Kane might find out Batman's identity. Here, you know, a reasonably intelligent woman figures out that her husband is actually, or her boyfriend or whatever, is actually the Flash. You know, I mean, and it's, you know, it's, it's obvious to her. I mean, you know, the first time you, know, you would hear your, you know, your husband's voice on TV talking out of the costume, you know who it was. I mean, it's just this, it's great that he's taking this, you know, thing that was so big as a story device in the Silver Age and just, you know, turning it on its head. For, to great effect. Yeah, I think really Flash cool. was always was one of my favorite parts of this of this book. Um, the whole Vegas scene, which was you know almost perfectly translated to uh, to the to the animated feature, um, was just to me just was just it was Flash. It was so, so just a fun Flash moment, especially the way he dealt with uh, with Captain Cole at the end there. MPH baby, MPH. That's another thing. All the voice actors did a great job. Boreanaz did a great job as hell too. I thought. Oh yeah, yeah. And I love the scene when when we get back to uh, 
you know, after Barry takes off. Well, just to back up a little bit on Barry, but it, again, it's a credit to Iris, you know, where she she respected, you know, her husband and boyfriend at this point. I'm not sure if they're if they're married or not. Um, she doesn't have a ring on, so I guess not. That you know, she didn't kind of bruise his ego, so to speak, by you know making a making, making a big deal out of it, or you know, or bringing it to his attention before now. Um, you know, she knew it was time that he did something. She could see it in his eyes and just said, okay, it's, you know, it's time. You need to know that I know, and I need you to know that it's okay. Back in Faraday's gulag, uh, John's getting a little uh, bonkers. He's going a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs here because um, he's kind of having, I guess, what could be best described as, like, sympathy pains or, like, phantom limb pains because the center's uh, going uh, berserk. And that's kind of like interfering with his Martian brain and, and telepathy. I love the fact that Vandal Savage, who is basically the oldest man alive in the DC universe, that's not um, from outer space, is, 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 you know, like foaming at the mouth and biting at the chomp here saying, you know, I, I've been to this island, which only makes sense because, you know, in his timelessness, you know, uh, this Cro-Mag has probably been... Or, I mean, Heck has even probably spent, you know, more than a couple, you know, nights over at the Days Inn on uh, Dinosaur Island there. And Faraday asks John um, if he'll join him to see if they can kind of, like, uh, curb some of the violence with a counterattack. John has the idea, well, I don't want to give anyone a heart attack. How about um, okay. I, I jump into a, a, a more human, a more, you know, agreeable uh, kind of form. And thus Martian Manhunter's born. But real men wear pants. Yeah, I love that Miami Vice moment on that last panel on that on that second page there, where the two of them are just profile with their sunglasses on, just kind of staring off at the sun shining on them. I want to I want to read um, if we get Martian Manhunter back after this whole Blackest Night thing for whatever reason. I want to see. I, I would love to have seen a comic with uh, with these two. You know, I mean, these, this they got the making of a buddy cop comic if I ever saw one. Yeah. Alien, yeah. Alien Nation. Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> That's kind of like what he and Slam had at the, um, when he was in Gotham, too, that kind of relationship. Yeah, I could see with Faraday, though, it's taken up to the whole next level, you know, with the whole CIA, you know, government conspiracy, you know, level to it. So uh, with the next couple uh, cut scenes with Green Arrow uh, and Speedy and the Sea Devils and, and here's our old friends uh, from Kingdom Come, the Blackhawks, basically uh, racing to quell violence and get to the Cape, we also see Hal kind of just hanging out at, at the uh, Notel Motel and winds up at Ferris Air. He's just kind of like commandeering um, one of Ferris's experimental uh, planes, and Karis is just like, what, what, what in the world are you doing? Hal wants to fight the good fight and help his buddies, the challengers, out, but he's reluctant to put on the ring. And... In probably one of the coolest scenes, uh, you know, Carol admonishes him and, and lets him go. And aren't you going to say goodbye? And then there's the classic, yep. um, you know, uh, heroes. You know, it's it's kind of reminds me of when uh, what's that one shot? The famous shot where the dude from the Navy kind of is in New York, and it was in Watchmen. You know, and he kind of sweeps the and girl the, sil- off the silk specter cuts in, or not silk specter, the silhouette cuts in and uh, takes her yeah. from him. And that, that yeah, old- like magazine cover. Yeah, 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 that one. That kind of reminds me of this, and her pillbox hat flies off yep. as the um, as the jet engine roars. And I guess you know, in true Han Solo style, he says, "I love you, Carol," and he's off to Canaveral. More than that, I mean, this this going back a page when uh, they're having their 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 little uh, encounter or their confrontation 
on the tarmac before the uh, he takes off. This is where I was going before about how he comes to terms with himself and what it means to have courage and have no fear and, and having been told and believing he's a coward. This is, to me, where, where the switch goes off for him and, you know, oh, how the passive is going to go fight this thing. And he comes out, you know, did you ever simply believe, think that I didn't believe what we were doing was worth killing over? And he just kind of like, it, it, it clicks for him and it clicks for Carol, you know, what was going on in his head. After, I mean, he was being psychoanalyzed, you know, between the trauma of, of firing and, and everything that happens in the war. Not one to fire, you know. It finally clicks for him, and it's going to open the door for him to really take control of the ring and uh, and become Green Lantern to be able to to be able to beat this thing. And just assert himself with Carol too, you know. That mm-hmm. basically he's not he's not going to take it from her, you know. And that he's going to you know you know basically man up and tell her like it is. Yep, which is what she really needed. That's right. She's always got to be the strong woman. She wants to be just a woman for a change. You mentioned he wants to go help his buddies, the Challengers. I'm early on in reading my early, my early issues of Green Lantern. Has Hal been linked to the Challengers like this? Like he has a personal relationship with at least one of them, if not all of them, or is that unique to to this? I want to say that uh, you know Hal's really really lined up with a Barry and with with Ollie more so. Oh well, yeah, with, that's with obvious, Brave and yeah. the Bold stuff. Yeah. But I can't really speak to that. Only that you know his relationship with with Ace Morgan and stuff, it's really the linchpin that ties him to the hero's fight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, but and that's exactly what I'm talking about. I, I've seen him, you know, with, with Ace, and, and the, uh, he was in Vegas with him, and then his conversation with him later on. That is something I had never seen before anywhere else, which is why I was curious if that was just a creation, a relationship that was made for this story. Not to say they didn't know each other, but you're right. In, in traditional DC continuity, DC comics, it's Ollie, Barry, and Hal. I mean, that's, that's the trio that I expect to see together. Chapter 14 starts off with Superman and hearing Diana's tale of, of Dinosaur Island, which the uh, aerial shot of the, of the center, uh, it's just kind of like this gigantic groundswell of a zit in the middle of the ocean here that basically uh, is just kind of tossing out a bunch of like ridiculous uh, demonized dinosaurs and just kind of like mythical almost uh, a beast and stuff. And she basically just lays it out like, well, um, <laughs> the whole Southern part of Themyscira is pretty much gone. And then it left and it's on its way. So let me tell you what, you got to take point on this and, and go for it. And she, well, it's not exactly a death rattle, you know, she, she's getting oxygen and pumped into her, you know, uh, Clark hears, uh, Adam Strange and Ollie and everybody fighting and bickering uh, down there, and <laughs> with a giant thunderclap, uh, Clark silences everybody. And Faraday comes in with John Jones, and with you know a rousing speech, it's up to us whatever it takes. Uh, Clark gets everybody on the same page, so uh, we can work together here. Clark hurdles head first into the center, and I'm looking at the splash page on 341 in the absolute where basically the center lets out a giant cosmic uh, blasting fart, and Clark's kind of like blown to bits, right? This is, uh, this actually, uh, this prelim page was on sale from Darwin Cook's art rep, Albert Moy, and the actual page itself was gone too. Like, I think it's interesting as far as pricing goes that regardless of how much is on, the, uh, is on a page and not much is on the splash page, I mean, it's all white light you know what i mean this was still you know a good you know five seven hundred bucks too 
just as kind of like an uh, as, as a side note, and basically with a fizzle, Clark's tapped out, and um, <laughs> into the ocean he goes. Lois and everybody else are gasping, and John's getting uh, the vapors and fainting, which is probably not the most heroic thing, but he'll be okay later. I do like that one panel where uh, Clark is walking away from Diana, and uh, the one soldier says to the other, up here, Sergeant Rock, and he goes, hey, the name's Captain Adam, buddy, okay? <laughs> yeah. This is like a much more serious, I don't know why I think of this when I watch, when I read this or, or, or see it, but this is, I guess, like a much more serious speech than Jim Belushi gives in Animal House where he's trying to rally the, rally the frat to, to get their revenge and get their house. Sorry, that was John Belushi. German? Please. John Belushi. Sorry. Please. Good Lord, I can't Please, believe Please, don't I get the two my... of those confused. <laughs> oh, my God. One, I one's my funny, Chicago... one isn't. There's this whole sequence of this Clark speech. I mean, the whole idea, you, we need a leader. This is the moment I mentioned before, like, you know, Clark working out in the open, Bruce working in the shadows until such time they can be, they can be reunited. This, this is that moment. Everything that was done by, I'll call it the superhero registration act, whatever it is that they, the, the loyalty oath, whatever they took earlier. And, you know, it made flash a criminal cause he wouldn't sign it. It made Bruce a criminal. It, it's all undone for the most part in this moment, or at least it's the beginning of the end here. And this is, this is the moment. This is the brave and the bold moment. This is the star one. This is where the justice league is just, was just created right here. And it was one of the coolest scenes inspiring scenes to watch and to have it end with Superman being taken out of the fight so quickly and easily. It's like, Oh, okay. Now what? Yeah. And I love John, John, uh, Manhunter when he shakes, uh, Superman's hand. He goes, likewise, sir, I greatly enjoy your animated adventures at the cinema, you know, which is a, you know, especially given his look, it's, it's a total nod to the Fleischer animated shorts. Yeah, and, you know, I mean, plus, you know, the Fleischer stuff was, with its use of, you know, Technicolor cartoons that it did from its, its studios, and if you, if you also take into account what RKO was doing and what Disney was doing in the early, early 40s, you know, stuff like uh, Superman and the Mechanical Monster and all this stuff, I could only imagine what it was like seeing those, you know, at the movie theaters and stuff. I mean, those Fleischer cartoons, I mean, they've influenced anyone from... I mean, animation, I mean, look at, you know, just Batman the Animated Series. I mean, there's definitely, like, the kind of rhythm and circuitousness of how the capes work and stuff like that. I mean, actual physics in animation, not just basic 2D art on a one-dimensional plane. You know, there there's depth to, you know, the building shades and stuff like that, just like in uh, the new Batman Adventures and Batman the Animated Series, too. Sometimes yeah, I think like that... Yeah, it's like, you know, guys, like, sometimes I think that, like, the old Fleischer cartoons from the 40s, sometimes I think that they're better just production-wise, as crazy as that sounds, than, like, a lot of the stuff I saw just growing up that was basically just half-hour commercials for toys, <laughs> you know? But, I mean, yeah. Max Fleischer, with, you know, everything else that he did, I mean, for as much of a, of a TV junkie that John is, I, I guess it makes sense, you know? I mean, remember, he was in the theater when he saw all the newsreel footage about the Challengers and Superman and everybody, too, you know? Yep. For it to move ahead, these, these next four pages actually kind of annoyed me because they seemed like they were just there just to say to anybody who might be asking, where are the mystics? Why aren't they there? Well, here's why. Yeah, let's see what they do. Let's see if the humans can handle it on, them, on their own. We'll just stay up here on the moon and be happy. At least they didn't have that hackneyed intro that Adam is always on about every time they use the Phantom Stranger, you know? Would you, would you like to have dinner with a stranger? A stranger? <laughs> <laughs> okay, this is the exception. I guess I'm, I'm, 
We'll have to do like DC or, or JLA Avengers because he does it like six times in that one. Well, um, they they are having dinner, <laughs> <laughs> and and it would be nice to be have, be the Phantom Stranger. I mean, he's got Zatanna on his arm, so that, that he's got that going for him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like I like this uh, take on the Phantom Stranger. He's more like the you know the early '60s Jet Set Playboy yeah. Phantom Stranger, you know. Yeah, like I said, it's like at this point, everybody's like, you know, well, hey, where's where's the magic users? They should all be there, right? Well, here you go. You know, we'll acknowledge that and say, yeah, we're just they, they just don't want to be there. I actually, like um, one of my favorite toy designs from the new Frontier line was actually Doctor Fate, and for the couple pages that he's in here, like I was really surprised that they made a toy out of him. But mm-hmm. that's a line that they haven't really continued. But like, that's a really really cool sculpt, and I really like uh, Doctor Fate's helmet, Naboo. That kind of like you know is a power source and, and whatnot. It's a cool one, and if you look, you've got the old uh, Captain Marvel lightning bolt, kind of like in Kingdom Come, in the Planet Krypton sequences that were in the book that Billy's drinking out of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and Billy's another thing. He's he's speaking with wisdom, yet he's still ten and got ice cream smeared all over his face. <laughs> yeah, it's like it just does. The whole thing just doesn't work for me, and I'll just I'll I, that's the last time I'll say it. <laughs> well, it's kind of uh, it's kind of again um, the uh, the superheroes in the in the thirties and the forties, you know, like the original Green Lantern and, and and whatnot, got a lot of their powers mystically, you know, through magic, through you know, it was a good MacGuffin, and you really didn't have to explain magic. Thanks, Joey the, Q. Yeah, thanks, Joey Q. Anyway, but uh, the thing that. <laughs> The thing about the uh, the Silver Age is there were more uh, science fiction based uh, heroes and villains. Um, you know, and like I said, I think I said this in the first episode too. Green Lantern is a great example. In the Golden Age, he was you know uh, the Mystic Green Flame or whatever. In the sixties, Silver Age reimagining, he you know is given a weapon of power from a you know intergalactic police force. You know, so this kind of symbolizes okay, you know, this really isn't our time anymore. You know. Captain Marvel and, and the mystic characters are going to kind of step back and let these characters, you know, take care of this thing. You know, mankind yeah. stepping into a new age. So I think that's kind of what Cook is going for here. And I guess to me that's kind of maybe is one of the reasons why it doesn't work for me because to me, in my mind, it's a difference between the two philosoph- the philosophy of the, of the big two companies. To me, Marvel, with exception, is technology and science you know the for the vast majority of their heroes and powers it's derived from science um or other er, uh, earthbound things with exceptions a few exceptions whereas dc is for the most part the mystical the fantastical with some exceptions you know you have batman who's very much grounded in science and earth but meanwhile you've got superman well yes he's an alien there's science there but it's still fantastical you know wonder woman mystical you know the power of the gods etc things like that so whereas you have spider-man on the Marvel side, you know, radioactive spider or cosmic race for the Fantastic Four or suit of suit of uh, armor. So, to me, magic-based powers is part of the DC universe, and to see it dismissed so easily in four pages, it annoyed me and wasn't true to what I know to be or what I believe is of DC. Well, the other big fantastical players have already been taken off the board, pretty much. I mean, the center took out Superman, well, took yeah, out Wonder and Woman. You're right. In fact, that that happened. Immediately before, so that's that goes to my point. This is the same conversation that we had, and this is the same scene that that Mark Wade and Alex Ross had in Kingdom Come when the, with the quintessence. Who's there? Phantom Stranger. Who else is there? The Spectre. Who else is there? Right? Uh, it was uh, Zeus and Shazam my father, father and and um, Shazam uh, Gan- Ganthet, Right? Wasn't so she, like wasn't Shazam there? No, he no, um, the, the wizard. Yeah, the wizard was there. Wizard and then was. My father. 
You yeah, know? Ganthet wasn't there, was he? Yeah. Yeah, Ganthet. Okay. All right. Yeah. 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 You know, so let's like, what what a you know good follow up to to Kingdom Come this is too, just to kind of play off of both of them. Shall Earth endure? It. Sounds like a really really big headline, don't you think, Russ? It's it's almost like a newspaper headline, and then we start with Lois. Yeah, and you know I think this is where you know we kind of get allusions to you know the whole death of Superman thing, and from the up to this point, every time we've seen Lois, and she's been in these crazy, dangerous situations, people dying everywhere, and she still wants to go on and get the story, and she's willing to put herself in great peril to get the story. And here, after Superman is, you know, at this point, they're they're pretty, you know, they're they're at least convinced he's dead or gravely injured somewhere. Um, she tries to go on and tries to record, and then just in the middle of it, loses it and is done. And Jimmy Olsen has to come to her her defense. One of the things, you know, we we see it here, and it's it's not a big deal, you know, for the most part. But you know, this the style, the look, the feel, and everything is so rooted in you know kind of Silver Age ness. And then we see there's there's been spatterings of foul language um, put in here. And I think it's not foul language for foul language's sake. I think it actually works and conveys the emotions of the characters in the situation they're in. And it's, you know, fairly mild for the most part. But I just, I thought that was kind of an extra touch of realism that you wouldn't have gotten in the true Silver Age or, you know, late Golden Age, whatever you want to call it, the transition period. But we get it in this book, and I, th- I thought that was just kind of an interesting choice from, from Darwin to, to put that in there. Bruce, uh, in shadows, with his dad looking down from him in a, in a painting, strikes up the deal with the devil himself, Lex Luthor, who we saw earlier on the yacht, that's basically diverting any, you know, resources, funds, whatever, any any uh, flyable aircraft from both Wayne and uh, LexCorp, uh, to everybody down in Cape Canaveral, a flying device of its own, Adam Strange, uh, has probably the easiest escape from Arkham Asylum I've ever seen. They just hand him his rocket, (laughs) and he's off to go find Ray Palmer. Whereas in Arkansas, still kind of like stuck in the Midwest, the Ferris aircraft, space plane slash... Flying uh, disc. Flying disc, Frisbee. We have to pay them if we say that. Crash lands. Hal's trying to fix it for a couple hours. And he's like, oh, wait, hey, I've got a ring. Well, <laughs> let's light this sucker up. The power battery and the ring fuel House Flight to Cape Canaveral. Meanwhile, Adam Strange's reading material comes in handy because he goes to Ivy Town and finds Ray Palmer and basically enlists the good doctor in uh, the good fight as well. Meanwhile, we see, to round out the chapter here, guys, Barry Allen gives King Faraday a crack <laughs> for uh Faraday's attempted capture, and Ollie's just lapping it up. I mean, I guess any, like, anti-Big Brother-type figure <laughs> being taken down is, is worth Ollie laughing over. And I just want to say real quick, if you look behind Ollie in the kitchen, all of the people working in the kitchen are black, and that kind of, like, harkens back to the John Henry story we saw earlier. I mean, this still is very much, like, you know, pre-civil rights movement in America, oh, absolutely, too. yeah. Even though it's been a couple of years, you know? The next uh, page is like probably one of my favorites in the whole story because there's all the big brains of the DCU at this point all in one room. You got uh, Dr. Will Magnus, uh, Professor Paley, uh, Dr. Niles Calder, Adam Strange, and Ray Palmer. And the scene where they're both Magnus and, pa- and uh, Paley look at each other with their pipes and almost knock each other's pipes out of their mouths is uh, pretty hilarious because uh, they look exactly the same in every comic I've ever seen them. And here they are kind of looking the same again. In tandem with House Storyline... Faraday says, well, how fast can you go? And Barry, already a hero, gives that, that blue-eyed look at Faraday and just says, watch my smoke. It's, it's time to take care of the center. And uh, so ends 
um, this chapter. So 16 starts off with the Dawn Patrol, and here, here's the science behind it. They're, they've figured out and they've scoped out the, the plan to take out the center. So the plan is that um, the Blackhawks take the aerial front, right, and the heroes mainly take on, with the artillery, the front of the center, and you know they've got the places where they're going to drop the payloads and, and and the bombs and all that all all that stuff. Well, I don't know where the aeroplane is <laughs> is is going to go, but their basic thing is to shrink it using uh, Ray Palmer's technology that uh, Magnus and our, your buddy from the Doom Patrol uh, is you know helping helping him with. They basically determine that the center uh, has to be destroyed in multiple different ways because it's, it's so gigantic. I mean, it's a, it's a landmass. I'm not going to say it's a continent, but it would, you know, make Australia blush, I'm sure, if it invaded that country. And, I mean, look who's up to the job as far as flying the planes that need to get the job done. How Jordan shows up, <laughs> you know, he talks to Ace and he says, you know, let's, let's do it up. And what follows is probably one of the uh, cooler splash pages with, the the heroes assembling minus Superman and Batman and uh, Wonder Woman. You know this is the story of the Silver Age and Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. You know, although guys, you know they definitely existed. You know their time was the Golden Age with Bob Kane and with Siegel and Schuster and you know and everybody else. This is you know the ballad of the B-listers and the supporting characters who, as we all know, you know have their own books now have their own fan base now, and this is who they are and, and how they came to be. It's very much uh, the right stuff feel on this double page. It's like the DCU's version of the right stuff. I thought it was uh, Bruce Willis and the crew of Armageddon going out to the uh, to the shuttles. No? Okay. I thought that was a riff on the right <laughs> stuff, too. So. It was. It was. It absolutely was. It's just interesting that as a convention, you know, there's the whole exploration of space and why it's important and... You know, NASA, of course, has a lot of ties to, you know, D.C.'s history as far as space travel and, of course, which we'll see later, President Kennedy and stuff. But I'm not really sure what the – I mean, I understand that there had to be a threat, but, like, nothing ever good came of space aside from the Green Lanterns and Martian Manhunter. Like, everything else is pretty much – well, I guess Clark, too. You know what I mean? (laughs) It it has done no good to to research into space. And not that we should be xenophobic or anything, (laughs) You know, it's like, well, and now the giant pterodactyl is going to blow up and give birth to, you know... Everything. <laughs> uh, any, anything you could ever want to run away from. It's like, what? Why, why don't we just stay on Earth, you know? I found it funny that everybody has a ship. You see, Green Arrow has a ship. Yep. And, you know, of course, Batman has a ship. And it's like everybody has a plane. That's just so Silver Age. There's also the reference to Mark Trainer as one of the uh, jet pilots. He ended up becoming Negative Man in the Doom Patrol. Does anyone notice Hawkman and Hawk Girl's conspicuous absence from the New Frontier? I mean, um, I understand that that was part of the whole JSA story, but I mean, did Hawkman really kind of come into his own from his inclusion in the JLA, or was his rise to fame directly related to his time in the JSA? I think you hit it before when you said that you know Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman are very much Golden Age characters. Uh, Hawkman was too. I mean, more more so. I think he embodies more the Golden Age and Silver Age. Maybe to have uh, him here might have been a distraction. Just because you've got the whole Thanagar space connection with it, and although that wasn't the original, you know what I mean, picture that we got 
of, you know, Katar Hall. If we're going to go to the space connection here, I just thought maybe it would have been worthwhile maybe to, to have mentioned him. Sean Whalen was very disappointed, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we know he loves the Hawkman stuff. So why not, right? So everybody's, you know, bombarding uh, the center, and back on the beach, uh, Wonder Woman jumps in. Jimmy's trying to fend everybody off, and everybody's kind of, like, hurtling, as one of the chapters uh, said, you know, into the center. And uh, Hal and Ace and uh, everybody are, are in tow going uh, headfirst. So uh, John continues to uh, freak out so much that it's kind of like he, like Captain Cold and apparently like Vandal Savage, and like the uh, cult leader, the center's kind of speaking through him, and he's wanting Faraday to uh, blow him away. And he takes on the form of kind of like a modified pterodactyl, part Martian and part center. And the center kind of like overtakes him and starts to attack Faraday, so much so that, you know, when they touch this kind of like psychic connection while Faraday's trying to snap John out of it, uh, takes Faraday out of the situation totally. This is the second person that's died because of John. You've got Dr. Erdell, and then now you've got Faraday. And that release, that psionic release or whatever, that Faraday, in true uh, Bishop of the X-Men form, absorbed from John, makes him what appears to be the second casualty of this fight, the first being Superman. Now, is this, whole, is this whole sequence with Faraday, is this just his his relationship with John allowing him to make this mental connection or does Faraday actually have this a uh, uh, mental ability of his own he's able to latch on and pull and literally pull it out of John and does he have powers or is it just simply their friendship that's allowing this to happen that that's how I took it it's just yeah. their connection in the short time they've been together that he was able to, to pull it out of them which is kind of funny because you figure Faraday is kind of the one in charge of all the you know xenophobia and you know finding these you know make sure that typical CIA you know men in black kind of guy and in the end, he sees John for what he truly is, and that he is a friend, and he mm-hmm. is here to help. And it, you know, kind of role reversal, where King, where King is like, no, this this guy is is important, and he's worth saving, and I'm you know going to do my best to do it. Yeah, and that's his a, own peril. And that's exactly why I enjoyed that chess sequence so much because he he really you see a friendship, um, a companionship developing, and he's starting to see John at least um, for more than just an alien or an alien invader. He's seen him as a being, and you know, maybe he can translate that to other, other aliens. And at the very end, you know, John, you know, my friend King Faraday will not have died in vain, with emphasis on the word friend. Um, it, that went both ways. Yeah. And um, the Ultimates, whenever Thor just kind of like blasts through the shapeshifters' ships in the finale, John just basically flies through a Tyrannosaurus's neck and goes absolutely nuts on these pterodactyls and stuff. I kind of look at those two, I mean, all of the Thor stuff is, you know, freaking epic and, and gigantic. I, I kind of look at it uh, in the same light as far as tone and, and uh, the ferocity that these guys come at uh, their enemy. These are the good guys, remember? the one. <laughs> Yeah, I love the sequence we get there of John going berserk. That top panel on the page after King dies almost reminds me of the first Superman movie. You know, when Lois dies and, and he kind of yells to the screen and start, and just takes off into flight, kind of that same perspective and same, you know, look on his face. Maybe John should have just went around the earth so much it reversed itself and fixed it that way. <laughs> it's magic. It is. And when Ace and Hal are uh, flying into the center, they're blasting away like what only could be described as a legion of dinosaurs and crazy stuff. 
on the surface, and then they hurtle head first into the center's center. <laughs> and in true, I would even say like psychedelia, everything kind of starts to <laughs> go fuzzy and bend. And like the coloring on the next couple pages are awesome, and that takes us into chapter seventeen, the pure rugged, which I'm pretty sure is another space cowboy reference, you know. And it's almost like time has stopped. Hal's planes in twelve different pieces. He kind of has this like flood of memory and this kind of like surreal moment. And this is the whole life flashes before your eyes, but now it's in you know fifty-seven different flavors and colors. But uh, definitely. You know, it's it's bizarre. Yeah, it, it, it was really hard to follow reading at first too to figure out okay what's happening. But I yeah, like it. it's, it's and cool. it drives it drives through that you know this is a being is not only attacking you know physically with through, through the dinosaurs, it's attacking mentally as well. Uh, John was more susceptible being a telepath by himself, and now you have these you know for the most part ordinary humans that are for the most part you know in direct contact with this thing. So you know I got to wonder what we're seeing these guys go through. Is this basically what was going through John's head before he snapped out of it? Because these guys. Uh, they're seeing some crazy stuff. He's definitely channeling his inner Stanley Kubrick here. I I just always think of like two thousand the end of two thousand one when yes. when start to, with all the craziness. Plus, it looks like he's in the tunnel in Willy Wonka when everything goes crazy. <laughs> That's the scariest part of that movie. <laughs> I was going to say we we've been saying about how much there's been the influence of Kirby all over this. Uh, this sequence especially really uh, I I see the influence of Steve Ditko quite a bit like with the you know the alien worlds and the kind yeah. of uh, misshapen uh, lines and the blur um uh, f- uh speed effects and things like that yeah, yeah. of course once Hal's ring kicks in the uh, the aura effect can uh cuts through it all and you can see the inside of the center for what it is which is uh um, ew we're inside the center <laughs> it's a gooey liquid center <laughs> This isn't uh, convenience store candy, though. This is kind of gross. This is kind of like, what was that level in Gears of War 2 where you're just inside the giant worm? Oh, the worm, yeah. You know, this is kind of like this. It's kind of like, ew, it's sticky, you know, gross. (laughs) But uh, Captain Adam uh, bites it in uh, Suicide Run, not that unlike, um, you know, when Hal, or excuse me, when Ace was in space and Superman had to save him, too, you know. So with uh, that said, I I like uh, Barry's role here where he basically has to just run like a madman to get the atomic, I'm just going to say device, in proper shape here. It's always hard explaining oddball science, so forgive me here. But, um, you know, Ace is just like, what's what's happening here, Hal? You know, he doesn't really get, you know, get what's going on. Barry's got to circle this thing, you know, how many times over, so that basically the chemical and, you know, electrical and any kind of other aura or molecule of the center is is contained so that ray palmer's you know magic trick of of shrinkage works and how contains the center as it's uh shrinking in a construct and when that's happening he's contacted by the guardians and in probably the most important words how you how jordan are the key your will drives the ring clear your mind and focus on what matters so and then here you have the um the protectorate, not that unlike Abin Sur, Ganthet at the head, guiding uh, Hal Jordan, and Hal launches it back in. Hal launches the center, excuse me, uh, back into space from whence it came. Yeah, you see all the main uh, Silver Age characters. I mean, especially Hal's story, but Barry's story too. I mean, he has to step up and go beyond and be the hero that he he's 
been trying to, you know. Same with Hal. He has to get past his self-doubt and his self-worry and become, you know, step up and become the Green Lantern. The Flash is having to push himself, run faster than he's ever had to, you know, run before to be a hero rather than just, you know, a novelty item in, in Illinois or whatever. I mean, you see, and same with Martian Manhunter. He's got to overcome his own, uh, you know, guilt over what happened to Dr. Odell and his own feelings of alienation or whatnot and overcome that and be the hero that he, that we know him to be. So, I mean, we see all these characters stepping up to become, you know, what we what we know as comic readers they're destined to be. And this was an awesome sequence in the animated as well after this. If, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't it after Barry was done all the running, he literally was just, like, sh- still shaking after he stopped? Oh, yeah. I don't think he's run like that ever. Yeah, he was, like, vibrating and yeah. stuff. Yeah, he's, like, still vibrating afterwards, which I thought was just really awesome. Wasn't the whole Guardian sequence, I think, uh, was actually in the center when he finally got control and understood what, what was going on. So by the time he got out with, uh, with Ace, he knew what to do and was able to contain it. But the Guardian sequence happened while he was still inside. Yeah, it's like the whole time stops thing. Yeah. Which I guess there aren't really any rules when you're in the center of a giant alien island stomach anyway, so why not? Exactly. <laughs> but basically, um, everybody's back in the, I'm just going to say, headquarters over there at Canaveral. And Aquaman's, I guess, Nautilus ship is revealed, in which case uh, he has Clark with him, and uh, Clark hands him over to Lois. Now, not to nitpick, but, like, I've never seen Lois, Lois's expression, right, when Jimmy takes the picture of her. She's kind of, like, biting her lip and her eyes are wide. Like, I've never seen Lois drawn like that, which I think is, you know, kind of remarkable. And I don't really think that looks like Darwin's art either. I mean, it, it definitely hits the notes. It's just um, it's just a really interesting and a, I'd say a really thoughtful choice. You know, not that it's out of character, but a different angle on things, you know? And well, then no, if that, it's, if it's yeah. right in with when he when he was presumed lost before, when she threw the mic and, uh, you know, Jimmy's like, you know, she loved him. Don't you understand that? She loved him. And that's the last we saw of her until until now. So... You know, now she's been distraught and upset for how long, and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, she's back. So, of course, how else would she react? And it's, you're right, it serves the moment very well. And in true Daily Planet form, Lois has a supplement, probably, well, Perry, probably, Perry White probably had the supplement run, and Lois and Jimmy's chronicle of the, of the firefight and the battle against the center are marked by this special edition of uh, the Daily Planet. So we jump into the epilogue, which has... You know, President Kennedy, uh, a nod to, well, this book's title, The New Frontier itself, Wonder Woman being an ambassador, not, you know, a warrior. And you can see she's got the tiara on, not the war helmet. We've got Arthur talking to the United Nations. We've got the doomsday clock from Watchmen, lest we have an episode without Watchmen being mentioned. (laughs) And it's impossible, admit it, okay? And... (laughs) We've got the menace of the Joker and all of the uh, bizarre rogues and, and villains of Gotham making their appearance and emergence. We've got John Henry Irons at John Wilson's grave. We've got Lex Luthor making the world a crappier place for everyone and polluting the waters. Aquaman can't be happy there. And we've got Clark and we've got John kind of looking out on the horizon uh, in Kansas probably at the Kent farmhouse. Yeah, it's just a great montage sequence here, this whole thing, you know, where we see all these nods to everything, you know, coupled with the, the speech in the background. I just thought this was awesome. And like I said, you know, like regardless of politics, this is, you know, I, I would also say that this is a very American story from America yeah. being yeah. uncomfortable with itself 
mm-hmm. the McCarthy hearings or any of the segregation and, I mean, flat-out racism that John Henry had to deal with. America's biggest enemy was on its own soil, you know, itself. It's, it's, not, it's not a matter of being progressive. It's not a matter of this or that. It's just a matter of being human, which really has been John's journey, you know, all along. How exactly do we define ourselves when, you know, America doesn't really have a strict definition itself? This isn't a call, you know, to be, you know, naive but in the idea of America being all-inclusive, you know, we still have, no matter how many great scientific advances that happen, which are a result of Doc Magnus and Ray Palmer and everybody, you know, in the story, guys, is that the fact is that there's still white-only water fountains. There's still racially segregated schools where Rick Flagg Jr. is, um, you know, giving a report on his, on his dad, who died earlier in the book. I love some of the uh, the superhero nods as well. I mentioned, you know, the turning point with Superman's speech, kind of undo the hearings and what we've done before. We've got the new heroes flying out. We've got the metal men. We have the Teen Titans are there. The foreman of the Justice League and Adam. I think is that your jam piece down there with all the uh, all the villains. <sighs> you know what? That was the first page I looked for. <laughs> but you know, when you have like a logo like that, and then you have all the heroes in costume. Oh yeah, it's... that drives up the villains pages like crazy. So, I mean, you've got the Sinestro, you've got Brainiac, Grundy, Grodd, Manta, Cheetah. Mixes Pitlick. I mean, that'll do it. The, that'll do it for the Legion of Doom, you know, my, my guys, you know what I mean? But, um, Two faces there. <laughs> you know, Why they, is Booster Gold on the double-page spread of all the heroes? Up above Green Arrow. That, yeah, I would think, I don't think that's Booster Gold. I, I remember when the movie came out, there was a question of that because this, this, this spread is uh, one of the DVD covers, I think. Oh, that's I Animal Man. With the hawk right yep. there. Yeah, the eagle right there, yeah. rather. Yeah, that's not Booster Gold. Oh, uh, fair enough. That's, that's Buddy. Thanks Green, thanks, Green Lantern. Sorry, that was a... But they kept confusing Booster Gold with Green Lantern in the animated episode, so... Right. Oh, nice right, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was, that was a thanks, fun Green episode. Lantern. That was a fun episode. Sorry. Because then with the double page here, you get... And, and this is what what's called kind of like the triptych, because you've got the Metal Men. I mean, obviously, you know, Magnus was, was kind of like inspired and then created the Metal Men. You've got the Ramona Fraden metamorpho tip, and then you've got the Jack Cole Plastic Man down yonder. And plus, you've, you've got, you know, Vigilante and Animal Man. And then you've got a really, really traditional uh, Supergirl up top, too. And, of course, the Hawks that we just talked about. Shazam. <laughs> Yeah, Billy's all grown up here. No ice cream. We cut to the Mediterranean, which still is feeds into the Pacific. And we kind of end the book where we began in, in the middle of the ocean here. And, you know, Lois and Jimmy are out reporting, and out of the water pops Starro, the Starro the Conqueror, right? And this is to wrap up the New Frontier. This is when, you know, the first team-up was in uh, of the Justice League here from that, you know, classic Silver Age issue. So, and and Darwin Cook says this on the DVD commentary, whenever the center's blown up and tossed into space by Hal, if you go to 391, as soon as the center gets tossed into space in the absolute, one of the pieces of the center is in the shape of a star. So what Cook said on the commentary is, he designed that, like, fragment of the center on purpose. Starro the Conqueror is basically one of those crazy monsters that kind of like an offshoot of the center, like the center junior. So like the JLA's actual first enemy 
together they faced was sorrow and on top of that you know they actually already already fought him you know together and then the last page of course is the recreation of said cover the, p- the page you're talking about is that the one where like the bottom panel is um from a distance over the water the headquarters and uh like the middle panel just has the green arc where he's flying off in the space. Do you that, hear that? Right. That if you look on the top right yep. of the first panel, it's in the shape of a star. Yeah, I see it. And that's also on the DVD. He was sure to tell Bruce Tim make sure that the that Starro kind of comes back. So I guess in some way, shape, or form, the center's still kind of here in the modern DC timeline. Uh, you know, he, uh, they're fighting Starro right now in Rebels. With uh, you know, Feral Drox and all and all those guys over there, so it's it's a neat continuance too. Because I mean, you know, it's Starro's a starfish. That's kind of dumb, but being a part of the center somehow makes all the nonsense a little more clear. You know? No, giant starfish is still pretty dumb. <laughs> yeah, it's fun though. Yeah, I guess it was cool in JLA Avengers. Hey, it was fun in uh, Legion of Superheroes in the 31st century when. Uh, after they they defeated the, uh, the the little stars, they took their cruiser and just like flew it right right through the big Starro and uh, and took it down. Yeah, actually, Jeff Jones just kind of redesigned Starro for the Rebels book now, so it's it's kind of like a, a different kind of take on things. Yeah, he was there, and he was in Booster Gold, and yeah. well, he was in um, Morrison's JLA Pat. run too. He was yeah. in um, the Meltzer JLA run, right? With that's what Grundy was using to control everyone was the mini Starros. Mm-hmm. And, and the tech that uh, was implanted by Professor Ivo and those things, too. So that's kind of a continuance. So uh, I guess to wrap things up, guys, your final thoughts on DC The New Frontier by Darwin Cook? Just fun. Just a fun story. You know, I like stories that, that, that don't impact continuity. They're just stand on their own. And, uh, and, and this is that. It gives me a lot of touch, touch a lot of characters. It's fun. That's the only word I have for it. It's just, it's just a lot of fun. This is my favorite thing I've read since Kingdom Come. I'm a, I'm a huge history buff, so the fact that they laid this whole thing out as like a chronological history of the DCU and did it so stylized, to me, I just thought was brilliant. I just love, I just love everything about it. I mean, I, like I said, it, this isn't typically, you know, which is so funny because it's not my typical, you know, comic book fare, but, um, but it's just so well done. I'll agree with you. I mean, I love, I love Kingdom Come, but with that was... That was very heavy to me, you know, to read. This is, like I said, this is this has some some moments that are that are pretty heavy, but it's it's a lot lighter. They're two very distinct uh, distinct flavors, so it depends on what mood I'm in. They're both they're both very good, though. Yeah, it's like somehow how shooting the soldier was a little more impactful than the atomic bomb going off in Kingdom Come. You know, it's more and, personal. It's, it's more. It's, it's a for, lot exactly. more personal. It's personal, you know. It's nothing personal in, in Kingdom Come. I mean, millions die, you know, right? Wow. And both when Kansas is blown off. But yeah, I mean, I think that has a lot to do with it too. It's just, I love the art style. I love the uh, the um, the realization of his story and the, the way that uh, it plays out. The the chronology of the DCU kind of made more sensical by uh, by Darwin Cook and uh, and the New Frontier and kind of really encapsulating that early '60s uh, optimistic uh, American, you know, finally getting a hold of itself and moving forward uh, vibe from that same period that is reflected in those heroes. So I really like it. Love the art. Love the story. Well, guys, that's going to do it for the New Frontier. Hey, um, Ken, can you give us a preview about what's to come here? What's, for, to, come, uh, next- what's to come here is we're going to kick off the road to Blackest Night. We're going to spend some time with, uh, with Green Lantern, starting with the Rebirth and work our way through um, the Green Lantern and some Green Lantern Corps that came with it. We're going to 
then spend some time on the Sinestro Corps War and the aftermath of that. And then we're going to look at the, the run-up to Blackest Night. By the time we're all done with it, uh, Blackest Night number one we'll have or we just about ready to ship. So um, it's going to be a fun next couple of weeks. And Blackest Night, that's going to take us up till you know December, January. That's know, huge. Which oh, February, sure, yeah, it's huge. I mean, you know, which I'm sure we'll be like kind of like do a touch and go stuff, you know, with Blackest Night as we go on. Kind of like how we're doing with the Flash Rebirth audio blogs. Yeah, at least. exactly. I'm we sure don't... we can package them up, you know, send them out to everybody, yep. which will be cool. Keep an eye on the website, you know, as we get to Blackest Night especially, because I'm pretty sure that we'll be audio blogging as they come out to get that fresh take on it. So um, like we're doing with Flash Rebirth, like we're doing with Lost, like we're doing with some of the other things, um, Batman and Robin number one. Go to you know, check out the website frequently and uh, – and see what we're up to. Yeah, we have a lot of uh, original audio blog content on the website, uh, legionofdeeds.com, that you won't get if you're just picking up us up on the feed or on the forum, so please check it out. Like uh, Russ said, the uh, Morrison Quietly Batman and Robin uh, number one audio blog is up now. I think we're going to be doing an audio blog pretty soon on E3 and all the video games that were announced there, so uh, keep your eyes out for that. Uh, in addition to our regular LOD episodes every Thursday and the HHW episodes every weekend. And if you're looking for some more Green Lantern goodness, don't forget the DVD, Blu-ray, Green Lantern animated, direct-to-DVD an- direct movie comes out. Uh, I bring it up because on our website, it might be off the main page by now, but we have uh, an interview with uh, director Laura Montgomery, who we also talked to before about Wonder Woman. So that's a, that's a fun, fun thing to read. And that website, well, of course, is Legion of, www.legionofdudes.com. Yes, definitely rock and roll. Well, hey, guys, um, thanks for doing the New Frontier with us. Uh, that's been really awesome. That's... Uh, you know, another small milestone for the LOD. We're ready to start uh, Maxi Series number four. So um, we're going to be doing Green Lantern Rebirth in two weeks. And we've got some one-shots and all kinds of good stuff coming up for you guys next week. So um, that said, on behalf of Russ, Jim, and Ken, and everybody else at the Legion of Dudes, have a good week, guys. And um, we'll catch you on the website. We'll catch you on the forums at thecomicforums.com. Make sure you drop us a voicemail and send all your comments to comments at legionofdudes.com. Have a good night, everybody. Good night. Good night. Good night.